Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 313 for February 27th, 2023. Real quick, before we get started, if you have an Apple device of any sort, iOS or macOS, you definitely need to get those updated to the latest and greatest software as soon as possible. There were some actively exploited bugs that were recently fixed, some pretty nasty ones. So you definitely want to make sure that your Apple devices are fully up to date. Also, there were a lot of things patched with uh, Windows Patch Tuesday a couple weeks back. So uh, if you've got a Windows machine, you want to get that device updated as well. Also, for those of you trying to buy my book, I apologize. I don't know what the heck is going on at Amazon uh, or really anywhere. That For some reason, the book has been hard to get. It's been out of stock at Amazon, being resold by other sellers. I don't know what's going on. That's just so weird. I have my publisher looking into it, but so far we haven't figured it out. I mean, you can always pre-order. It just might take a while to get there. I'm hoping that some of these time estimates are ridiculously too far out and conservative, but they're well into March in some cases. That's I don't get that. And it's not just here. It's in Europe apparently as well. Some of my patrons were telling me this. These things should be printed on demand. So I, I really don't get what's going on. But on the plus side, I'm starting to get reviews for the book. And so far, they are all five stars. That is wonderful. I uh, still only have a handful of them, however, so I really need to get more. But man, those really help. So if you bought a copy of the book and you really like it, I would love for you to post a nice review on Amazon. But anyway, we've got a news show for you today. Uh, we're going to talk about how some TikTokers are actually hot wiring Hyundai and Kia cars. Twitter has taken a really odd step with two-factor authentication, moving the SMS-based two-factor authentication only to the paid subscriber plans. And perhaps in response to that, there are now a lot of scam authenticator apps on the App Store. There was another interesting article about how thieves were spying on people using their phones, figuring out what their, you know, their passcodes are. And then stealing the phones. And then, you know, once you've got the passcode to somebody's iPhone, you can get up to a lot of mischief. And this article will tell you all the different ways that could be really bad. Google has started to launch its first Android beta on its ad tracking overhaul, their privacy sandbox. So some of you who are Android users may start seeing this soon. The Mozilla Foundation has published a, a rather interesting report about how many of the top apps in both the Google Play Store and the Apple Play Store, though it's focused on the Google one, basically have false or misleading statements at least about the, their privacy nutrition label, their, like their summary of what their app is supposedly doing and not doing. And then I've got an article about how supermarkets are using your loyalty card, your uh, supermarket loyalty program to not only track what you buy, but way, way more than that. It's pretty creepy. And then I'm going to read you part of an essay from Bruce Schneier, kind of about the state of security right now and what it's going to take for us to, you know, significantly improve where we're at. Then I've got a Dear Carrie question. Actually, I've got a surprise guest answer to that question because they asked me something about Portmaster and I thought, you know what? Why don't we go to the source for that one? So I've actually got Raphael, the CEO of uh, Safing uh, and the maker of Portmaster to answer that question for you. And then finally, we'll get to my tip of the week where I will tell you how to peek under the covers and see where all those shortened URLs are actually going to go without you having to click the link. So that's what we've got in store for you today. Let's get to it. 
All right, first up, this is from Lifehacker. Uh, and this is about how some clever individuals have shown everybody on TikTok who cares to learn how to hotwire a modern Hyundai or Kia car. A trend that started last summer, possibly related to a TikTok challenge, is teaching people how to easily hotwire Kia and Hyundai vehicles with just a screwdriver and a USB cable. Now, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, has released new guidance for Kia and Hyundai owners on what steps they could take to protect their cars from potential theft. The TikTok trend started with a how-to video guide where a pair of masked individuals called the Kia Boys showed how to hotwire a Kia by opening the steering column with a screwdriver and sticking the USB into the ignition cylinder, which just happens to be the same size, to turn the ignition on. All Kia and Hyundai models manufactured between 2011 and 2021 don't have engine immobilizer systems installed, according to a clash action lawsuit, rendering them vulnerable and targets by this manufacturer defect. In October, Hyundai came out with a $170 kit to protect the cars with installation costs of up to $500, according to cars.com. By December, the manufacturers were working with some police departments to provide free anti-theft steering wheel locks. Those are those big metal bars that you that you put onto your steering wheel that basically makes the car impossible to steer without removing the lock. Anyway, these were provided to owners of the affected Hyundai and Kia vehicles, according to Car and Driver. Now, the NHTSA has announced that Hyundai and Kia have come out with a free security software update solution. By the way, these are sister vehicles. These are, I don't know what the exact relationship is, but uh, I think it's basically the same manufacturer, uh, Hyundai and Kia. So that's why they could kind of work in concert. And that's probably why they both have the same problem. Anyway, they have a free software update solution that updates the theft alarm software to extend the length of the alarm from 30 seconds to one minute, which I can't believe that's terribly helpful, but it also requires the key to be in the ignition switch to turn the vehicle on, which definitely seems to be the more important response to this. According to the NHTSA statement, 3.8 million Hyundai and 4.5 million Kia are eligible for the software update. According to the Associated Press, updates for Hyundai begin first for their most popular and targeted vehicles, about a million of the following models later this month. And it lists the 2017 to 2020 Elantra, the 2015 to 2019 Sonata, and the 2020 to 2021 Venue vehicles. The update will be available for the remaining vehicles, including Kias, subsequently over phases for the next several months until June. Along with the software update, Hyundai is providing window stickers that alert potential thieves that the vehicle has the anti-theft protection. And I'll circle back to that in a second. You can also contact your local law enforcement to see if they are one of the 77 law enforcement agencies in 12 states providing free steering wheel locks. The NHTSA announcement urges Hyundai owner to call, and you can look the show notes up for these numbers again if you need them, 800-633-5151, and Kia owners to call 800-333-4542 for information on when and how to get their software update. All right, so the sticker thing, why would we have stickers? Well, if, if, if you're a, someone who's looking to steal one of these vehicles and you're looking for one of these models of Kia or Hyundai cars, and you see a sticker on it, Hopefully what that means is you would just pass that one by and not try to break in the window and then steal the vehicle or find some other way into the vehicle, probably by damaging the vehicle to do so to get in there and then find that the car actually can't be stolen. So to prevent the damage uh, from the attempt to steal it, these stickers are being given out. So, so hopefully thieves in the know uh, will see that sticker and pass by. 
Now, honestly, <laughs> I would think there would be a thriving market for third-party people making similar stickers, because if I didn't have time to get my vehicle updated, I would certainly put slap that sticker on anyway. This is kind of like the fake security cams. They make these, by the way. I don't know if you're aware, but you know, you go into stores and you see those little dark glass domed cameras, or sometimes they've they've got like little mirrored domes. If you find them and you see them, you think, okay, those are those are security cameras behind those little domes. And they usually have a little flashy red LED light that indicate that they're recording or watching you or whatever. Well, <laughs> there are companies that make fake ones that just have a blinky LED light. And you just put that up. And so people think you've got security cameras when you don't, which is why mass surveillance has such a negative impact on society in general, because we act differently when we think we're being watched. But if you have a recent model Kia or Hyundai, you should definitely be talking to your dealership about this and making sure that your car, if affected, is going to be updated soon. Next up, this is from Mashable, and it's about a rather odd change that Twitter just made. To non-Twitter Blue subscribers, and Twitter Blue is their for-pay option where you pay so much money a month and you become an official Twitter Blue subscriber and you get a little badge next to your name that says you're special. Anyway, so for non-Twitter Blue subscribers, those users now have 30 days to get on the Blue train or risk having their SMS two-factor authentication turned off. The new policy from Twitter and CEO Elon Musk was alluded to in a tweet by platformers Zoe Schiffer early Friday afternoon. The news is all but official now, according to an updated blog post on Twitter's website. The post admits that while SMS is a popular form of 2FA, and <laughs> wait till you hear the numbers on that in a minute, it can be easily abused. Thus, the platform is locking the privilege of using its worst form of authentication behind an $8 subscription, or $11 if you use an iOS device. And I'll come back to that in a minute as well. The site then suggests that non-Twitter Blue subscribers, quote, consider using an authentication app or security key method instead, unquote. So it's either that or wait until Twitter turns it off for you on March 20th. As Twitter points out, SMS 2FA is not required to log into the app, but it is one of the platform's most used forms of authentication. According to Rachel Toback on Twitter, based on the site's own transparency data, only 2.6% of the platform's users have two-factor authentication, and the vast majority of them, 74%, use SMS authentication. One big reason a company might put SMS authentication behind a paywall as the Verge's Sean Hollister points out, is that sending SMS messages costs money. Twitter is in desperate need of money, and it's been the plan since the billionaire took over to phase out SMS entirely anyway. But it seems, at least for now, Musk has found a way to at least monetize SMS. Considering that Twitter Blue subscriptions are making less than we thought, SMS authentication might be phased out entirely in the near future for all users. Okay, so a couple quick things there. First of all, it says that SMS is a popular form of 2FA. Sure, I guess if among the 2.6% of people who actually use two-factor authentication, yeah, sure, 74% of them use SMS-based authentication. Okay, I guess that makes it popular. But it just blows my mind that people will not use two-factor authentication. It's, well, until this, it was free, and it adds so much more security to your account. I mean, I suppose for most people, they don't really care about those social media accounts. They really should, though, if they have any kind of a following whatsoever, because if that account is hacked, then, you know, your reputation could be trashed. They could be used to scam other people. It can even be used to attack other accounts. So one key takeaway from this is, my goodness, if you're not using two-factor authentication for your important accounts, which include email and social media, 
you absolutely should be doing that. But I will confirm that two-factor authentication is much better with an authentication app. I use Authy personally. Uh, Google Authenticator is probably the most popular one. But any place that can use Google Authenticator can also use Authy. There are some other really good ones too that I actually need to spend some more time looking at. Apple actually has a built-in two-factor authentication app. I have not tried it yet, believe it or not. But that sounds like it could be interesting. Of course, if it's Apple, it might be limited. Like it maybe it would only work if you're using Safari. Not sure. I need to look into that. Uh, for Android users, there's one called Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, that is very popular. And there's another one for Apple called Ravo, R-A-I-V-O-O-T-P. Those look interesting. But uh, personally, I've been very happy just using Authy. All right. So this next article, which is related to the previous one, is from 9to5Mac. Twitter's latest bonehead move has led to a flurry of scam authenticator apps, with at least one of them using App Store advertising to figure prominently in search results and then sending all scanned QR codes to the developer's analytics service. There's a whole array of others that appear to be free, but then require in-app purchases in order to scan QR codes. Twitter last week came up with a bright idea of selling account safety as a chargeable service by putting SMS-based two-factor authentication, or 2FA, behind the Twitter blue paywall. Admittedly, SMS 2FA is horrible, leaving all your secured accounts vulnerable to SIM swapping attacks. If Twitter were simply dropping support for this and asking everyone to use an authenticator app, that would be one thing. Instead, Twitter is giving the impression that SMS is a premium option by charging for it. This has created the perfect opportunity for scam authenticator apps to separate non-techies from their money or even from their accounts. Developer and security researcher Misk, that's spelled M-Y-S-K, and we've quoted this researcher before, quickly spotted a whole bunch of suspiciously similar apps, all of which demand an in-app subscription purchase in order to scan QR codes. And this is a quote from Misk, quote, the timeless art of authenticators. All these authenticator apps are free and offer in-app purchases. You install them to discover that you can't scan any QR codes until you subscribe. $40 a year with three days free trial. The apps are very similar, unquote. And there's actually a picture, by the way, of all these apps icons, and they, they are almost identical. He was quickly able to find a dozen of them and questioned why they weren't spotted in app review. And that means by Apple's app review, the process by which an app gets approved to go into the store. At least one of these tries to force you to subscribe, even if you tap the close box. And this is another quote from Misk, quote, let me show you something interesting. This app was released on February 19th of 2023 and ranks five for authenticator app in the US app store. As you can see from the video, once you tap on X to close the paywall, you will get triggered in subscription confirmation, unquote. And if you watch the little video that he posted on Twitter, basically there's a pop-up that says, all right, it's going to cost you money to do this. Click continue. And then if you, instead of clicking continue, find the almost invisible little X at the upper left where you're trying to close that window, it then takes you immediately to the point where you're paying for the subscription, like double tap here to confirm that you're buying this. And thankfully, there's still a point right there where you can cancel. But man, that that's sleazy. Anyway, finishing the article, one scam app even captures your QR codes and you don't have to look very hard for it, uh, meaning the application. The developer took out an app store ad, which means it is prominently shown when you search for authenticator apps. On iOS, you can now use the built-in support for 2FA. Alternatively, Google Authenticator is my default choice and Misk says he hasn't found any reason not to use it. Misk reports that Apple now has removed the apps the company reported. So that's good. I mean, that is kind of how this process sometimes works. They slip through the cracks, they get through the 
phase where Apple reviews these things, I mean, you know, who knows how many thousands of apps are submitted to Apple App Store every day, and they try to get them in as quickly as possible. I'm sure that a lot of these processes are automated. They look for, you know, really big red flags, and then some of them still get through. And so then what happens is you they get reported and they get taken down. And then I hope, and I actually, I don't know if I've ever seen this happen, but I hope that what happens then is if somebody has installed that app, they might get a warning next time they try to run it. But actually, I'm not sure that's true. But at least other people won't be able to download it and install it. So anyway, go with what you know. Authy is the one I use. Google Authenticator, you know, other than privacy is fine. And Apple has built-in support for this now too. I, I need to look into that and maybe maybe I'll do some sort of a tip of the week on that down the line. But while this article and the previous one, I guess, kind of both kind of really pile on and saying that SMS-based two-factor authentication is horrible, it's not horrible. It's just not nearly as secure as using uh, an app. And the problem is that SMS itself is really not that secure. It's based on your phone number. It's based on your cell phone account. If I can manage to go to the store and get a phone in your name, like, you know, I say I lost my SIM card or somehow managed to clone your SIM card, then I am you. I can act as you. I can get all your messages. I can make phone calls and send messages in your name. You know, my phone becomes your phone. And that means that whenever something sends you a two-factor authentication token via SMS, that the bad guy with the cloned phone has that has that code now too. So the problem really is with the SMS part of that. Two-factor authentication is great. It, having two-factor authentication, even SMS-based two-factor authentication is way better than not having any two-factor authentication at all. But almost everybody now supports using a Authenticator app like Google Authenticator. And again, if it says Google Authenticator, sometimes it says it by name, kind of like Kleenex is kind of used interchangeably with tissues. Any time-based pin code app, TOTP, time-based one-time password app will work in that case. All right, next up, this is an article from MacRumors, but it's, you know, this is something that really could have happened at any time, uh, but it's it's a really interesting article, and it's actually based on something from the Wall Street Journal uh, about how thieves are stealing iPhones and using clever techniques to get into those iPhones because they're probably protected, right, by a pin code and or biometrics. So anyway, let me read the article and then we'll talk about it. An in-depth report published today by the Wall Street Journal highlights instances of thieves spying on a victim's iPhone passcode before stealing the device in order to gain access to the device, data, and money. All of the victims interviewed said their iPhones were stolen while they were out socializing at bars and other public places at night. Some victims said the iPhones were grabbed out of their hands by strangers, while others said they were physically assaulted and intimidated. The report provides specific examples of these instances. With knowledge of the iPhone's passcode, a thief can easily reset the victim's Apple ID password in the settings app, even if Face ID or Touch ID is enabled. Subsequently, the thief can turn off the Find My iPhone on the device, preventing the owner of the device from tracking its location or remotely erasing the device via iCloud. The thief can also remove other trusted Apple devices from the account to further lock out the victim. The thief can also change an Apple ID's contact information and set up a recovery key in order to prevent a victim from recovering the account. To make matters worse, knowing an iPhone's passcode allows a thief to use Apple Pay, send Apple Cash, and access banking apps using passwords stored in iCloud Keychain. Even if Face or Touch ID is enabled on the phone, thieves can simply bypass these authentication methods and an option to input the device's passcode is presented. 
access to other passwords stored in iCloud Keychain allows the thief to further wreak havoc as it could give them access to email accounts and other sensitive information. All in all, the report says thieves could essentially, quote, steal your entire digital life, unquote. In response to the report, an Apple spokesperson said, quote, we sympathize with the users who have had this experience and we take all attacks on our users very seriously, no matter how rare. We will continue to advance the protections to keep user accounts secure, unquote. Apple did not provide any specific details about any next steps it might take to increase security. In a tweet, Joanna Stern, who's one of the article's authors, recommended that Apple add extra protections to iOS and introduce additional Apple ID account recovery options. In another tweet, Stern recommended that users switch from a four-digit passcode to an alphanumeric passcode, which would be more difficult for thieves to spy on. This can be done in the Settings app under Face ID and Passcode, and then Change Passcode iPhone users can also use Face ID or Touch ID as much as possible when in public to prevent thieves from spying on their passcode. In situations where entering the passcode is necessary, users can hold their hands over their screen to hide passcode entry. So think of this like the ATM machines and, you know, the debit card readers at the grocery store that have these little cowls around them to prevent somebody from, you know, seeing what number somebody entered by watching their finger press the buttons at a distance. Because entering a passcode is actually a pretty secure method for locking down your phone, the thieves know that stealing a phone without having the passcode is basically useless. And so now they're coming up with these clever theft techniques that, you know, you go to a bar, they kind of surreptitiously look over your shoulder when you're unlocking your phone, especially if you're typing in a code. And if they can quickly, you know, see what what number you typed, then they just have to wait for their opportunity to steal your phone from you. You know, dig around in your purse, walk by the table and snatch it off the table when you're not looking, or apparently in some cases, actually just outright steal it from you, taking it from your hand or threatening you until you give it to them. Now, the article did mention one thing about uh, removing trusted Apple devices from your account, and that is because let's say you've got an iPad at home and someone steals your phone. Well, if you still got a trusted Apple device, a device you have registered with Apple, then that device can be used to recover your account. Let's say the bad guy steals your phone, gets into it using the passcode they saw you type in over your over your shoulder, and then they change your iCloud password. Well, you can then, if you have a trusted device, like I said, a, an iPad or maybe a laptop uh, that's been registered with Apple, Apple as a trusted device, you can still try to recover your account if you've quote unquote forgot your password. In this case, it's because somebody changed it and you don't know it anymore. But again, if the thief knows what they're doing, and I'm, you know, most of these thieves that are going to go to these kind of measures probably do, they know that as soon as they steal that phone, if they can get into it with your passcode, then they need to quickly undo a lot of the security protections on your Apple devices. Change your iCloud password remove any other trusted devices from your account so that you can't recover them, create a new recovery key for your account in case you've already created one. If they create a new one, I think it replaces the old one. So they would quickly, probably as soon as they can, go through all these processes to try to unwind all the security protections that are on your account. And if you're out at a bar somewhere, I mean, (laughs) what are the chances you're going to be able to get home and try to recover your account before the bad guys have done it already? So anyway, I don't want to make you paranoid about this. You know, theft is always a problem, but your iPhone is really the the cornerstone to your digital life. And it's got access to so many important things. You really need to protect that device. 
So you absolutely need to lock it, which I think now is mandatory anyway, but you really want to consider having something better, better than just the standard four digit passcode to make it harder for someone, you know, looking over your shoulder or at a distance or, you know, watching you type on your phone to be able to figure out what it is you're typing and then using that against you if they can find some way to actually steal your phone. All right, next up, this is from The Verge. Around this time last year, Google revealed it was working on a multi-year initiative to improve privacy and remodel ad tracking on Android phones, bringing the mobile platform in line with Apple's app tracking transparency feature for iOS. And I would take issue with the fact that they're in line, but anyway, let me continue. Following the release of an early developer preview last April, Google has said the first beta for Privacy Sandbox on Android will start rolling out tomorrow to a limited number of Android 13 devices, allowing users and developers to test the new technology in the real world. Access to the beta will expand, quote unquote, over time, and devices selected to participate will receive an Android notification informing users of their eligibility. The Privacy Sandbox on Android is a set of tools that aim to create a new standard for how advertisers and websites access information about consumers without compromising user privacy. Android devices are currently assigned a unique user-resettable Android advertising ID, which is used to track user behavior and build a personal advertising profile that can be used by app developers. The Privacy Sandbox aims to replace this advertising ID with privacy-preserving APIs, or application programming interfaces, which Google claims will limit user data being shared with third parties and remove cross-app identifiers while still supporting personalized ads. The Privacy Sandbox on Android shares some similarities with Google's Privacy Sandbox for the web project, which aims to begin phasing out third-party cookies in Chrome by 2024. And by the way, they've pushed that deadline out several times now, so I'm not sure if it'll stay in 2024. We'll see. Google says that the two projects share a, quote, common vision of enhancing user privacy while supporting key business capabilities, unquote, but use distinct technologies and will be developed independently. Users selected to participate in the beta can manage which of their personal interests ads can target by going to the Privacy Sandbox section of settings. For example, if you're seeing ads for camping gear and sleeping bags, then Android may have presumed from your downloaded apps and app activity that you'd be interested in quote-unquote outdoors topic, which you'll be able to see listed in this view. Users can block topics they don't want to be targeted for and opt out or back into beta participation at any time. So I'm going to reserve some judgment about this until I know more about it. But from what I've seen so far, Google is trying its best to find a compromise solution here where it can still collect information about you based on things that you do, not just self-reported interests, but, you know, monitor what you do to try to figure out what you might be interested in through inference, watering that down into categories that shouldn't be controversial, like sexual orientation gender, race, medical problems, things like that. And instead kind of put you in these anodyne things like, you know, outdoors or cars or sports, you know, things like this. And then also do that in such a way that, that you cannot be personally identified. We will see how well this works. We will see if they backslide. We'll see if they take it too far. And, you know, it, you know, the privacy erodes over time, which, you know, has certainly happened in the past. But, you know, they're trying. I'll give them some credit for that. We'll see how well this turns out. So anyway, if you're an Android 13 user, if you're one of the lucky few, you may be getting a notification soon. And this is what that would be about if you do. All right, just a few articles left, but these ones are a little bit longer. So hang with me there. I think they're important. 
This one is from the Mozilla Foundation, the company that makes Firefox. And it's about data privacy labels uh, in the Google Play Store, which is similar to the quote-unquote privacy nutrition labels that Apple put in the Apple App Store. This is a way to quickly summarize for users when they're trying to figure out which apps they want to install and maybe which ones they might want to avoid, what the privacy implications are for a given app, what kind of data it stores, who it shares it with, and these kind of things in a nice little summarized way to give you a quick check on the privacy policy instead of having to read the whole privacy policy. But unfortunately, it has its downsides. So that's what this article is about. Google Play Store's data safety labels would have you believe that neither TikTok nor Twitter share your personal data with third parties. The app's privacy policies, however, both explicitly state that they share user information with advertisers, internet service providers, platforms, and numerous other types of companies. These are two of the most egregious examples uncovered by Mozilla's Privacy Not Included researchers as part of a study looking at whether Google Play Store's new data safety labels provide consumers with accurate information about which apps collect, use, and share personal data. And nearly 80% of the apps reviewed, and hold on to judgment because it's a very small set of apps, Mozilla found that the labels were false or misleading based on discrepancies between the app's privacy policies and the information apps self-reported on Google's data safety form. Researchers concluded that the system fails to help consumers make more informed choices about their privacy before purchasing or downloading one of the store's 2.7 million apps. The study, called See No Evil, How Loopholes in the Google Play Store's Data Safety Labels Leave Companies in the Clear and Consumers in the Dark, uncovers serious loopholes in the data safety form, which make it easy for apps to provide false or misleading information. For example, Google exempts apps sharing data with quote-unquote service providers from its disclosure requirements, which is problematic due to both the narrow definition it uses for service providers and the large amount of consumer data involved. Google absolves itself of the responsibility to verify whether the information is true, stating that apps, quote, are responsible for making complete and accurate declarations, unquote, in their data safety labels. For the study, Mozilla compared privacy policies and labels of the 20 most popular paid apps and the 20 most popular free apps on the Google Play Store. So 40 total apps. Each app was then assigned a rating of poor, needs improvement, or okay. Apps that received a poor score had major discrepancies on their data safety forms in terms of types of data shared or collected or the purposes for which the data was shared or collected. Apps that earned an okay score had privacy policies that were closely aligned with their disclosures on the data safety form, and apps that were graded with needs improvement fell somewhere in the middle. The study found a few things, and let me just rattle these off. First, in nearly 80% of the apps they reviewed, Mozilla found some discrepancies between apps' privacy policies and the information they reported on Google's data safety form. Second, 16 out of 40 apps, or 40%, received a poor grade, including Minecraft, Twitter, and Facebook. Shocker. Three, 15 apps, or 37.5%, received a middle grade of needs improvement, including YouTube, Google Maps, Gmail, WhatsApp Messenger, and Instagram. Four, just six out of 40 apps, or 15%, received an OK grade. These apps were Candy Crush Saga, Google Play Games, Subway Surfers, Stickman Legends Offline Games, Power Amp Full Version Unlocker, and League of Stickman 2020 Ninja. And finally, three apps, UC Browser, Safe, Fast, and Private, League of Stickman Acti, and Terraria did not fill out the form at all. And here's a quote from Jen Kaltreiter, who's a project lead at Mozilla, 
Jen says, quote, consumers care about privacy and want to make smart decisions when they download apps. Google's data safety labels are supposed to help them do that. Unfortunately, they don't. Instead, I'm worried they do more harm than good. When I see a data safety label stating that the apps like Twitter or TikTok don't share data with third parties, it makes me angry because it's completely untrue. Of course, Twitter and TikTok share data with third parties. Consumers deserve better. Google must do better. Google's Play Store's misleading data safety labels give users a false sense of security. Honest nutrition labels help us eat better. It's time we have honest data safety labels to help us better protect our privacy, unquote. Noting a 2021 Washington Post investigation that found similar problems with the Apple App Store's labels, Caltrider said the study also brings into question whether Google and Apple can objectively police the safety of their apps in their stores. Google Play and the App Store generated gross revenues of approximately $48 billion and $60 billion, respectively, through mobile apps in the 2021. Caltrider says it's critical the tech industry takes steps to create standardized data privacy labels, much like the nutrition labels now found on packaged foods and fast food menus. And another quote from Caltrider, quote, The history of nutrition labeling shows it's possible to create a standardized system that becomes part of the cultural fabric and makes a positive difference in people's daily lives, unquote. To address the problem, Mozilla recommends that Google and Apple adopt a universal standardized data privacy system form on their platforms. Google also recommends that the companies expand and explain their enforcement action against apps that don't comply and take some responsibility for ensuring the accuracy of the information apps report. So I think it's great that we've got watchdogs out there holding these guys accountable. I applaud both Google and Apple for trying. I mean, that is a first step. You know, having some transparency is crucial, but it's got to be correct. If the transparency is fuzzy, if it's more translucent than transparent, that's not enough. Worse yet, if it's like a funhouse mirror that gets distorted, it's even worse. I would love to see these guys get together and standardize and harmonize their definitions and their formatting and things that would just help everybody. You know, of course the government could step in and just mandate this. That's how we got nutrition labels on food. But until then, these companies can keep doing what they're doing. They can make these things better. They can enhance their enforcement because obviously in both cases, I'm pretty sure it's strictly voluntary. In other words, when developers submit an app to the store, they have to fill out the form, but there's no one to actually go through and for example, like these guys did, compare what's on that form with what's actually in their privacy policies to make sure that they're in agreement. And then to verify that, you know, whatever they fill out makes sense. You know, what good are nutrition labels on the side of food if they're not necessarily correct? And if people learn that they're not correct, then they're not going to bother looking at them. All right, moving on. This one's about those supermarket loyalty programs, the, all the discounts you get when you're at the store, when you type in your, your number or you scan your card. As I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast have already, already figured out, it's not just about getting discounts. There's, there's something in this for the grocer as well. And this article from the markup talks about it. Now, I, I cut a lot of this out. There's, if you want more information, uh, go through and read the article. There's a whole lot more details. Uh, but this is what I thought the most important parts were. When you hit the checkout line at your local supermarket and give the cashier your phone number or loyalty card, you are handing over a valuable treasure trove of data that may not be limited to the items in your shopping cart. Many grocers systematically infer information about you from your purchases and quote unquote enrich the personal information you provide with additional data from third party brokers, potentially including your race, ethnicity, age, finances, employment, and online activities. 
Some of them even track your precise movements in the stores. They then analyze all this data about you and sell it to the consumer brands eager to use it to precisely target you with advertising and otherwise improve their sales efforts. Leveraging customer data this way has become a crucial growth area for top supermarket chain Kroger and other retailers over the past few years, offering much higher margins than milk and eggs. And Kroger may be about to get millions of households bigger. In October of 2022, Kroger and another top supermarket chain, Albertsons, announced plans for a $24.6 billion merger that would combine the two top supermarket chains in the U.S., creating stiff competition for Walmart, the other top seller of groceries. U.S. regulators and members of Congress are scrutinizing the deal, including by examining its potential to erode privacy. Kroger has carefully grown two quote-unquote alternative profit business units, that monetize customer information. Expected by Kroger to yield more than $1 billion in quote-unquote profits opportunity. Folding Albertsons into Kroger would potentially add tens of millions of additional households to this data pool, netting half the households in America as customers. While Kroger is certainly not the only large retailer collecting and monetizing shopper data through the use of loyalty programs, the company's evolution from a traditional grocery business to a digitally sophisticated retailer with its own data science unit sets it apart from its larger competitors like Walmart, which also collects, analyzes, and monetizes shopper data for brands and for targeted advertising on its own retail ad network. This is a quote from John Davison from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, who I have interviewed before. And John says, quote, I think the average consumer thinks of a loyalty program as a way to save a few dollars on groceries each week. They're not thinking about how their data is going to be funneled into this huge ecosystem with analytics and targeted advertising and tracking. And I also think that's by design, unquote. So what does Kroger collect and how? As a Kroger shopper, your information can be collected both online and in person in their stores. When you enter a store, if you have a Kroger app on your phone, Bluetooth beacons may ping the app to record your presence and may send you personalized offers. Your location within the store can be tracked as well. Kroger says your consent is required and the location tracking stops when you leave. Kroger also says that in quote-unquote select locations, store cameras are collecting facial recognition data. And this is indicated with signs noting the use of this technology. At the register, if you use your loyalty membership, such as Kroger Plus or Boost, detailed information about your purchases gets added to your shopping history, tied to a unique household identifier. And if you're shopping online at Kroger.com, third-party trackers send your product page views, search terms, and items that you've added to your shopping cart to Meta, who owns Facebook, Google, Bing, Pinterest, and Snapchat. According to the Kroger privacy policy, the company will, quote, only collect information when needed for a particular purpose, unquote. That's pretty vague. Here is some of the information that the company says it may collect depending on the specific customer. Personal information, information you provide when you sign up for the loyalty program, name, email address, mailing address, phone number, membership ID, and unique household identifier. Purchase history, historical in-store and online shopping purchases with no time limits on how long the information is kept while you are a member. Location, your precise physical location in the store with your consent, including when you enter and leave a store. Financial and payment information, and this is in quotes, credit, debit, or other payment card numbers, bank account numbers, unquote. Health-related information, and this is another quote, where permitted by applicable law to serve you better, we may make certain inferences about you based on your shopping history that are health-related, unquote. 
mobile device data, mobile advertising ID, IP address, browsing data, use of tracking pixels and cookies, demographic data, quote, age, marital or family status, including whether your family includes children, languages spoken, education information, gender, ethnicity and race, employment information and other demographic information, unquote. Biometric data, facial recognition, and select location with signs providing notice. Behavioral inferences, quote, we create inferred and derived data elements by analyzing your shopping history in combination with other information we have collected about you to personalize product offerings, your shopping experience, marketing messages, and promotional offers, unquote. The company says in its privacy policy that the data collection is used to fulfill shopper requests, personalize product offerings, improve services, and, quote, support our business operations and functions, unquote. Kroger notes in disclosures to the Securities and Exchange Commission that, quote, third-party entities do not have access to identifiable customer data, unquote. So what can you do about it? Thanks to various state privacy laws, residents in California, Nevada, and Virginia can opt out of data sales, but still remain a member of Kroger's loyalty program and continue to receive discounts. You can request to opt out here. And of course, that's the link that you would need to go to the show notes to find so you can click on it. California and Virginia residents can also request a copy of their data and request that their data be deleted. Phil Lempert, who's the founder and editor of Supermarket Guru, suggests that there may not be much you can do as an individual if you want to avoid being tracked. And this is a quote from Phil, quote, I would just say that if you're concerned about privacy and a supermarket or any retail store being able to sell your data, don't sign up for the frequent shopper card and pay with cash, unquote. All right, so I'm guessing that you've probably guessed at some of these things. And if I had asked you these questions, you would probably have said, yeah, they're possibly doing that or they could be doing that. But it's quite another thing to actually hear that they are doing these things, to see the full list of all the things that they're doing, or at least all the things we know they're doing, and then realize how how much information that these companies are collecting on this. And this, I'm picking on Kroger here. And just to make sure that you understand that, you know, when you sign up for these, you know, loyalty cards at, at grocery stores, that you really are basically opting in for just another massive level of surveillance by these companies. And they are selling it to other people. They're certainly giving feedback, you know, what you might call analytics data back to all the brands that they support in their stores. You know, Coke and Pepsi want to know what people are doing in their stores, what products they're buying, what other products they're buying that it might be related. They might want to, you know, do some advertising campaigns with, but they want to know how long you linger in certain areas of the store. They want to know which end caps are getting the most attraction. How long do people spend in the store? What is their, you know, what is their typical path through the store? So they know where to put the hot items to make sure that they get seen. Look, I understand. I understand why they want this information. I understand that they want to sell more products and they want to sell information to other companies who want to sell products. I I, I get it. This is welcome. Yeah, welcome to capitalism. But the only reason that they can collect and use all this data right now is because there's no laws saying they can't. And one other thing you might try just, just for grins, and uh, I would be curious to know how often this actually works, but one really fun quote unquote solution I've seen to this is to basically use someone else's number as your loyalty card, find someone else's number that works. But the, the fun one is to use, you know, pick your local area code, whatever that is. And then uh, for the phone number, use 8675309. And if you are anybody who lived through the 80s, that number should have immediately 
rang a bell for you because that is the number of Jenny, according to Tommy Two-Tone, a one-hit wonder from the 1980s. But apparently that number is so well known that several people in various markets have given that out as their number to try to give them a false number. And such that if you go to a store and they say, what's your phone number for your discount code, try giving them that number. It might just work. And then they won't be tracking you. This will all be going into some bucket of useless data. And of course, something else you could do if you want, you could try to get yourself a burner number or something where you can use for all these various loyalty programs and things that, that are keyed in by your phone number. You could try that as well. But I personally love the idea of using Jenny's number. That would be just too fun if that worked. I, need, I actually need to try that at my local supermarket and, and see if that works. All right, one more article. And this one is a little philosophical, but I, I thought it was important. And I, I wanted to read you uh, part of it. This isn't the whole article. If you want to read more, you can click the link in the show notes. And this is from Bruce Schneier. That he has a blog that he writes to every once in a while and no schedule that I can tell. But every once in a while, he writes essays like this and posts them on his blog. And this one is entitled, What Will It Take? So from Bruce, what will it take for policymakers to take cybersecurity seriously? Not minimal change seriously, not here and there seriously, but really seriously. What will it take for policymakers to take cybersecurity seriously enough to enact substantive legislative changes that would address the problems? It's not enough for the average person to be afraid of cyber attacks. They need to know that there are engineering fixes, and that's something that we can provide. Even the most spectacular failures don't affect 99.9% .9 of the country. Why should anyone care if the Chinese have his or her credit records, or if the Russians are stealing data from some government network? Few of us have been directly affected by ransomware, and a temporary internet outage is just temporary. Cybersecurity has never been a campaign issue. It isn't a topic that shows up in political debates. This just isn't an issue that most people prioritize or even have an opinion on. So, what will it take? Many of my colleagues believe it will have to be something with an extreme emotional intensity, sensational, vivid, salient, that results in large-scale loss of life or property damage. A successful attack that actually poisons a water supply, as someone tried to do in January by raising the levels of lye at a Florida water treatment plant. And by the way, that one was caught early and prevented. Or an attack that disables internet-connected cars at speed, something that was demonstrated by researchers in 2014. Or an attack on the power grid, similar to what Russia did to the Ukraine in 2015 and 2016. Will it take gas tanks exploding and planes falling out of the sky for the average person to read about the casualties and think, that could have been me? Here's the real problem. For the average non-expert, and in this category I include every lawmaker, to push for change, they not only need to believe that the present situation is intolerable, they also need to believe that an alternative is possible. Real legislative change requires a belief that the never-ending stream of hacks and attacks is not inevitable, that we can do better, and that will require creating working examples of secure, dependable, resilient systems. We, and again, I think he's speaking as like we as engineers, need to demonstrate that it's possible to build systems that can defend themselves against hackers, criminals, and national intelligence agencies, secure Internet of Things systems, and systems that can reestablish security after a breach. We need to prove that hacks aren't inevitable and that our vulnerability is a choice. Only then can someone decide to choose differently. 
When people die in a cyber attack and everyone asks what can be done, we need to have something to tell them. We don't yet have the technology to build a truly safe, secure, and resilient internet and the computers that connect to it. Yes, we have lots of security technologies. We have newer research ideas and products that aren't successful because the market still doesn't reward security. We have even newer research ideas that won't be deployed again because the market still prefers convenience over security. What I'm proposing is something more holistic, an engineering research task on par with the internet itself. The internet was designed and built to answer this question. Can we build a reliable network out of unreliable parts in an unreliable world? It turned out that the answer was yes, and the internet was the result. I am asking a similar research question. Can we build a secure network out of insecure parts in an insecure world? The answer isn't obviously yes, but it isn't obviously no either. While any successful demonstration will include many of the security technologies we know and which would see wider use, it's much more than that. Creating a secure internet ecosystem goes beyond old-school engineering to encompass the social sciences. It will include significant economic, institutional, and psychological considerations that just weren't present in the first few decades of internet research. Cybersecurity isn't going to get better until the economic incentives change, and that's not going to change until the political incentives change. And political incentives won't change until there is a political liability that comes from voter demands. Those demands aren't going to be solely the results of insecurity. They're also going to be the result of believing that there is a better alternative. It is our task to research, design, build, test, and field that better alternative, even though the market couldn't care less right now. So I thought that was a really good article. And as always, Bruce has a very thought-provoking take on things and thinks of things at a much higher level than most people are. And I think this is 100% correct. We haven't really had, at least here in the United States or in much of the world, we haven't really had cybersecurity incidents that are so egregious, cause so much damage or loss of life that people finally say, all right, enough is enough. And yet there, <laughs> there have been a lot of problems. I think Part of the issue, too, that he doesn't really talk about is a lot of these problems aren't directly tied to what people think of as cybersecurity. Even if the, the news story kind of labeled it as a hack, I, I still don't think people are, are seeing the bigger picture that, you know, having better cybersecurity, having more resilient systems, having systems that are not as easy to be hacked or when they are hacked, don't fall over as badly as some of the ones we have today do. I don't think we've put together the idea that all these things are related and could have been avoided had we spent enough time and money on these things ahead of time. We're very reactionary. We're not proactive enough. But I do think it's a really interesting perspective that he brings up here that it could also be that most people just throw their hands up and say, ah, this is just the way it is today. The internet's like this. It's flaky. It's buggy. Data breaches are going to happen. Hacks are going to happen. You know, all we can really do is react and move on. And I think what Bruce is saying is, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think the analogy with the internet is a good one. I mean, he's exactly right. The internet was built to let all these computers talk to each other in a very robust and resilient way, assuming, and in fact, back then and knowing that the network was going to be flaky. There's, there were going to be outages. Someone's going to take a backhoe and cut that fiber optic cable. Systems are going to go down. We need to be able to route around those things. We need to have redundancy and other resiliency mechanisms. And Josh Corman was talking about this too when we, when we uh, talked about this last year. Resiliency, robustness, these are the kind of things we should be searching for and implementing 
and architecting. These are things like the, the internet resiliency mechanisms, the technical resiliency that is built into the internet for routing can also be done for security. And he's also right that this is not just a technical problem. There are some technical, technical solutions that we need to be looking at that we should be investigating and researching and putting time and effort into and deploying. But there are psychological and political and economic aspects to all of this stuff as well. All of those things need to be aligned. And it would be so much better if we would do this ahead of time, always be prepared, if we would somehow get this done before we needed it, instead of reacting to some horrific future event, which then triggers us to try to catch up and, and spread this out after the fact. Okay, so I will get off the soapbox, but I thought that was really interesting. Again, it was a longer article. If you want to read the whole thing, go to the show notes and click the link. Okay, so time for Dear Carrie. And this was a question that I got from Victor from Amsterdam. And Victor says, Dear Carrie, I listened to your show about Portmaster and SPN. And I was wondering, I use a MacBook with Lockdown, which is Apple's new lockdown mode we've talked about briefly here before, Proton VPN, Intego Firewall, and Brave as my browser to keep tracking to a minimum. Could Portmaster and the SPN replace all of these, especially Lockdown and the Intego Firewall? Thank you for all your great podcasts. Well, of course, this was in response to the interview I did with Raphael from Safing, who makes Portmaster and SPN. And then, of course, as soon as I read this, I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I know Raphael. Why don't I just reach out and have him answer this question? So I did just that. And here is what Raphael has to say to you, Victor. So the question was, if Portmaster and SPN can replace MacBook, uh, MacBook Lockdown, Proton VPN, Intego Firewall, and Brave. And the short answer, sadly, is no. First of all, because we're not on Mac. But if you would want to replace a setup like this on a different device, I think um, the extended answer would be parts of it. Um, you can replace Lockdown and Proton VPN and uh, many parts of Intego Firewall uh, with Portmaster and SPN. Uh, some stuff is different. Um, we are not a VPN, so not 100% uh, the same as with Proton VPN. And we are, of course, offering a different set of features than Intego. So we have um, Secure DNS in there. None of those things that you're mentioning are doing system-wide Secure DNS and, and stuff like that. So, But Intego has some other features that we don't, for instance, like adaptive, like depending on the network, it changes changes things and behavior we don't do that yet we want to do that in the future but not yet and for the last bit brave um, we're not a browser and so we don't do stuff like script blocking inside the browser and stuff and lockdown actually does that in safari but you can of course do this in brave manually as well so i would say stick with brave or do like a lockdown firefox or something um, but yeah so we cannot replace this part of your equation so there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Thank you, Victor, for sending in that question. I've actually got several kind of queued up. I think I'm going to have to start doing some double duty here soon. I'm going to have to start answering more than just one question to start doing some catch up. So uh, if you have sent me a question, I apologize if I have not gotten to that question yet. I, I mean, I won't necessarily answer every single one of them on the air. Some of them actually are similar to other questions or some of them are answered I know from you know other tips of the week and things that I've done. But I am, nevertheless, still getting a little bit behind. So uh, keep sending me questions, by the way. You'll be put into a monthly drawing to get a free PDF copy of my book. But just realize that I'm not going to answer everyone on the air. And I'm uh, some of them, actually, I'll just answer via email. And I might not get to them right away uh, on the air either. But if you've got the question, chances are somebody else does too. So answering a few will also answer it for them. So send me those questions at dearcarry at firewallsdon'tstepdragons.com. 
You can also send me an audio snippet if you'd like. I will actually play you asking your question on the air. For full details, go to fdsd.me slash Q&A for all the details. Okay, so now it's time for the tip of the week, and I'll, I will make this pretty quick. This actually came as a result of somebody, an article that one of my patrons posted in our Discord discussions. So shout out to my patron. Thank you for bringing this up. And it triggered me to think more about this and research it a little bit more. And I actually created a blog article on this. So if you want the full treatment, you can go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, and get all of this information there. And if you're a newsletter subscriber, it's already sitting there waiting for you in your inbox today. But I want to talk a little bit about shortened URLs. And of course, URL is a universal resource locator. That's the fancy name for basically a web address, http colon slash slash whatever.com. So certainly you've seen this, though you might not have you know, thought twice about what they are. But a lot of times when you click on these really short, convenient links that have nice names that are easy to remember, those are not the actual link in a lot of cases. These are what we call shortened URLs. And there are services that do this because, you know, a lot of web links are really nasty and long. They've got a lot of parameters and things to it. There's just no way you could just read this on, for example, read it out on a podcast or put it on a piece of paper or a poster somewhere and expect people to remember it. Obviously, if it's on the web, then you could just click it and it just works. But for any other way you're trying to communicate to someone else a web address where they need to either remember it or write it down, you want something that's easy to remember or to write. And so these services like Bitly is a, probably the most famous one, uh, but there are several others. And, and a lot of the big companies like Google and Twitter and, and, and some of these other companies that deal with a lot of web addresses being posted on their sites have their own shortening services. And a lot of this is not out of the goodness of their heart, by the way. A lot of these shortening services, what they do, it's a redirect. They, they give you a, a shortened link that's easy to remember or makes it fewer characters, but that also inserts themselves or their shortening service as a middleman between you and what the actual end site is. So this short link, like the ones I've just given you, like fdsd.me slash QNA, that's a shortened link. That's actually not the real destination for that link. When you click that, it expands and takes you to the actual website. Honestly, it's just like a QR code. QR codes are really the same thing in the physical world. These two-dimensional you know, images that your phone can scan that eventually takes you to a website. And a lot of those under the covers also use a shortening service as a redirect. So this makes it opaque. This makes it non-transparent. When you look at that link, you can't actually tell by looking at that link where it's really going to take you. And that could be problematic, certainly from a security standpoint. So how do you fix that? Well, Turns out there's actually a couple interesting ways you can do this. For a lot of these services, including Bitly and Google and some of these other ones, if you just add a plus sign to the end of that shortened link, it will, instead of taking you to the, instead of taking you to the site directly, it will actually take you to an intermediate stop and say, okay, you put the plus sign on there. That means you want to know more information before we go there. Here's where this is going to take you. And here's maybe even something we know about that site. Some of these services I'm about to mention actually will give you a, a visual preview. Like it will go there for you kind of behind the scenes and take a little screenshot of what that website's going to look like when you get there and show you that before you even go there. But more to the point, the main thing they will do is they will expand that link to whatever it's going to redirect to the final destination and show you what that is. So you can at least look at that and decide, is that a website that I really want to go to? There are some other ones out there like Tiny Earl, Tiny URL. They have a slightly different mechanism for that. If you have a Tiny Earl shortened link, if you put preview.tinyearl.com and then whatever it is, basically you use the prefix preview dot uh, on the 
tinyurl.com domain, it will do the same thing. If it's tiny.cc, that's another uh, link shortening site. If you put a tilde at the end of those links instead of a plus sign, that has kind of the same effect. There are actually lots of weird ways to do this. Nobody has standardized on this, unfortunately. There's a link in the article that will show you a lot of other different ways this might work. Or you could just try one of these other websites that if you enter that URL in it, it will do all this work for you regardless of, of which one it is. Uh, one of the ones that I've used for a long time is called checkshortearl.com. That's checkshorturl.com. If you go there, you can enter this shortened link, you know, bit.ly or even my links, I think will work there too, fds.me uh, and some of those other ones. If you put that in their little search thing and click, click the button, it will go figure out what the final destination is. It, there could be multiple redirects, right? It'll, but it'll, it'll go through all the redirects for you and show you what the final destination is really going to be and try to even give you a little screenshot of what that website's going to look like when you go there. There's another one that might be easy to remember. It's called unshorten.it. Unshorten it. You know, that's very clever. Expandurl.net is another. Getlinkinfo.com is another. There's actually several of these now. <laughs> you know, there's, there's plenty of these. To the best of my knowledge, they're all safe sites to use. But the one I personally have used and can vouch for because I've used it at least is checkshortearl.com. So there you have it. There's your news, your dear carry question and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Again, the merch store is open for business. If you want to buy some really cool Firewalls don't stop dragon swag. Uh, you know, you like my castle and dragon logo. You can slap that puppy on all sorts of <laughs> interesting stuff. Hats, shirts, tote bags, stuffed animals, you name it. And if it's <laughs> and if it's not listed there, let me know. On Chances are, honestly, if it's something common, I can add it and you can put my logo on just about anything. Again, I don't make a lot of money off this stuff. It's really mostly for fun, you know, but hey, it's, it is, does contribute to the bottom line. I don't do sponsorship, for example. I have avoided doing any sponsorship on the show. I don't know how many podcasts you listen to, but you know, most big podcasts these days have got sponsors of some sort and you have to listen to ads and crap like that, you know, just to avoid any apparent conflict of interest. I, I, I didn't want to do any kind of sponsorship. So, you know, I'd have things like patreon.com where you can be a patron and you can get some cool benefits for doing that. Now you can buy some merch. Also, if you want to just directly contribute, there's a way to contribute Monero. You can give me some cryptocurrency. So if you want to support the cause, uh, that's one way to do it. But merch is kind of a fun way to do that, right? So anyway, I thought that would be kind of cool to open up a merch shop. So there you go. To find it, go to fdsd.me slash merch and check out all the fun products. Got some great interviews coming on the pike. Next week, we'll be talking with Mo Bittar. He's the founder of the end-to-end -end encrypted note-taking app called Standard Notes. I also just got done recording an interview with Casey Babcock. She's from Bitwarden. So that will be coming up soon as well. Got a panel discussion coming up with me and some other privacy advocates that I hope you'll enjoy and plenty more in the works. So, you know, again, as always, if you haven't already subscribed, that way you won't miss any of this goodness. Send me your Dear Carrie questions at dearcarrie at firewalls.stropdragons.com. Go to the show notes to find links to all of this stuff, including links to the articles I read you today. Check out the brand new book. It's got tons of great info in it. Spread the word. Help other people find this stuff as well. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. Uh, stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.